We are in the last quarter. I've worked it out. I've mapped it out. We are in the last quarter of our our book, uh, our series through the book of Hebrews called Jesus is Better. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, begins a new section. It is one of application about all the teaching that has happened from chapter 4 onwards, and really the the whole book uh, onwards. This has been said, so now what do we do with it? We've seen how Jesus is the, the better high priest, Right? This is using Old Testament, Old Covenant language uh, in in Israel. Uh, he is the better high priest who brings people to God as one who mediates something called the New Covenant, God's promises, uh, which is read about in Hebrews 8. Jesus ministers from a better tent or a better tabernacle or even a better temple. Uh, literally, he ministers from the very presence of God using a tent not made with human hands as he is seated after his death resurrection he is ascended to the right hand of the father and he is seated from where he ministers he is also the better sacrifice for sin the unblemished lamb of God who puts an end to the sacrificial system as we know it and so Hebrews 10:18 has told us as a result of all of this, there is no longer any offering for sin. Sin being that which separates us from a holy, just, and loving God. And I say that. A loving God says that no unholy person can come before him. And it is the good news of what Jesus Christ has done is because of his love that he has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. The writer of Hebrews tells us in the section that we're going to read that we now have access to God because of what Christ has done, and we're told to do three things. We're called to draw near, to hold fast, and encourage one another in light of it. Now, usually when we have a baptism, I feel uh, very tempted to, to preach a separate message on baptism. I'm actually going to do that from this text because as providence would have it, Baptism is in the text, uh, so that is, that, is, that is great. So I'm just going to keep marching on uh, through Hebrews. If you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not sure about Jesus, you're not sure about God, maybe you're a hardened atheist, I don't know. I want you to listen carefully too in seeing what Jesus Christ has done to reconcile people to God, the creator of all things that we see. So let's read uh, these six verses in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest of the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. This is the Word of God. This text breaks down very nice and, and simply. In verses 19 to 21, we, the writer is talking about the benefit of access to God. And then in verses 22 to 25, there are the three applications of our access. Simply, God has granted us access. What do we do with that? Right? That is what uh, this text is saying. And so the benefit of, of access is for certain people. It says, therefore, brothers, therefore, brothers and sisters. Your translation might say, therefore, brethren. It is a reminder, this is an encouragement to these people that they are still believers in Christ. They are brothers and sisters. They are children of God. And the original hearers of this letter to the, to the Hebrews were tempted to go back from having received Jesus. They were tempted to go back to the old covenant sacrificial system with its, with its temple and its priests and its sacrifices and its incense and uh, ceremonies and Day of Atonement and all those things. The writer of Hebrews has said, these things are now obsolete. They are no more. This word here, brothers and sisters, it is a reminder to that no matter what age, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what social status one has, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is a deep equality within the church as all are equally sinners and all are equally redeemed and given the same status. Right? I'm a pastor of a church. It's a special position. I'm not better than any of you. Right? That is how this works. We don't, we don't worship people on some sort of higher status. This access has come about in two ways. You can see it flowing through these, these verses. It says, this access has come because Jesus is a priest. It says, priests bring people to God. It says that in verse 21. And then secondly, sacrifices are for covering of our sin, they're for covering of our shame, which separates us from God. We have access to God because Jesus is both priest and he is sacrifice. And so what is happening here is after all this discussion, and I'm, I'm sorry if you've, you've, you've missed it over the past few months, but all this discussion has been brought to a head, and we're told that the Old Testament tabernacle and tent in the wilderness was a shadow or a copy of the better things to come. The priests were pointing forward to the greater priests. The tabernacle was pointing forward to a greater tabernacle. The, the animal sacrifices were pointing forward to the Lamb of God. The good things have now come, and that is Jesus Christ. And so uh, these things are now being used as a metaphor by the writer to the Hebrews, a metaphor, an illustration of how the believer in Christ has access to God. So using the old language to explain uh, to his hearers how this all works. Something very important that would have been so abundantly clear to these people. When, when the writer is saying to them, 
We have confidence to enter the holy places. They understand they're talking about the presence of God. They understand they're talking about the tabernacle within which was the holy of holies, which only the high priest would go to uh, one day a year. This was a copy of the very presence of God in, in heaven. They understood that. And the people would have understood only priests go in. That means people from one tribe out of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi. Only one tribe go in, and then the high priest come from the line of Aaron. Only very specific people get to go in. But here we're told, hey everybody, have confidence to enter the holy places. We do. To come before God. He's telling people that in light of this old covenant being made obsolete and God having a new covenant, by faith in Jesus Christ, we have access to God because everyone has become a priest. It's kind of shocking to the system to, to, to hear that. But hear what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, verse 4 and 5. You have come to him, Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's a fascinating verse that Christ is the cornerstone in which a temple is built, and you are living stones in this house of God that is being built, and you all have become priests. Are we to now start killing animals and uh, offering those? No. Instead, you offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. That is the language. It is using old language, but it is given and fused with new meaning. Therefore, we can draw near. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us access to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. This kind of means, let me very quickly say, we have access as children of God. Tim Keller's got a great illustration where he says, only a child would wake up a king at three in the morning and ask for a glass of water. We have that kind of access. This is talking about a personal relationship with you and the God of the universe. This is allowing prayer, private, personal, and, and corporate prayer. We have access to God and that we're able to, to, to confess our sins to Him. We are to, able to, to repent and receive His forgiveness. We have access in, in worship in our, in our private lives and we have access in, in corporate worship and that's what's going to be coming up in Hebrews chapter 12. We're granted access to His kingdom which will come in its fullness at His return. And we have the promise of seeing Christ face to face. So that is the access that the Christian has received to God and only gets better and better and better. Therefore, we have confidence to enter the holy places. A way has been opened up, we are told. Even the high priest in Israel did not have that level of access. That is the better promises that the gospel brings. 
we're told here in, in, in this text that there's a, a curtain that is through his flesh. Jesus' flesh is called the curtain, right? using the illustration of separating us from the very presence of God. It says there's a curtain that we can now pass through because by his incarnation, becoming a human, and his sacrificial death, we can go through that curtain to God. It is being that is what is being pictured. We sung this truth. It was being pictured when Christ upon the cross. We're told that the veil, the curtain in the temple, split in two, metaphorically showing that because of what Christ has done, we have access to God. It is a new and living way because no one else has walked that path before. No one has done what Jesus has done, and that's. Part of the important reason, why couldn't God just forgive us? Why couldn't God just make it happen? Why did he have to send his son? And the writer tells us in Hebrews 2, he had to be made like us to save us. We have this confidence, we have this access, because Christ is our sacrifice and he is our high priest. And we can therefore go into the presence of God. I want to bring out one one more thing on this, but in Hebrews chapter 6, it uses a remarkable, wonderful illustration. It says this in chapter 6, verse 18. It says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. A forerunner was a ship in ancient times that would take an anchor, you use the word anchor there, and it would take an anchor on a long rope and it would go ahead of a larger ship. It would carry the anchor line, it would carry the rope, and it would take it into the harbor. Especially if you've got uh, rough weather on the outside, that forerunner would take the, the line and it would drop it safely in the harbor saying here that we have a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, the very presence of God. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus is our anchor into the presence of God, and because he is there now, the Christian, through our union with him, has a promise of hope. He'll bring us in. He'll bring us in. We have that access. And is this why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. All right. That's our access. As I always say, so what? I mean, that sounds good. What do we do with that? We're given three applications on how to use our access from verses 22 to 25. Do you know when it's a good idea to call something an application? Preachers love application. Right? And they're always throwing out application after application on a Sunday. I kind of struggle with that sometimes. Right? The best way to call something an application is when the Bible actually tells you to do something. So you're not just inventing a list of extra rules to throw on people. Now we've been some applications in Hebrew so far. And it's fascinating to me that almost every application 
that has been in the book of Hebrews so far gets brought back up in chapter 10 and the next few chapters. And they're bolstered. They're given more teaching with them. If you notice in, in the text, it says, every time your text says, let us, that's an application. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us stir one another up. The first one I'll spend more time on. Let us then draw near. The connection here is to, to Hebrews 4.16, which is said, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The argument is, is bolstered. It's saying, you have access to God, use it. It's like having a great car in your, in, in your garage and then saying, I'm just going to take the bus everywhere. No, use it. As Paul so often does, there's doctrine first. Not that I believe Paul wrote this. There's doctrine first and then application. As a result of what God has done. Here's some theology. Now you're going to live in light of this. Doctrine and theology emboldens and allows application and worship. You do what you believe. So it says, draw near, and it says so in four ways. It says, you see that there? It says, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and with our bodies washed with pure water. And it's not saying you have to do these things to yourself. It only tells you draw near. It's saying you can draw near with a true heart and with full assurance of faith, because you have been changed if you are a believer in Christ, and you didn't do it. Where on earth is this language coming from? This language of evil consciences and pure water and, and, and washing. I want to say that the writer of Hebrews is not inventing this. He is using the Old Testament once again to, to give uh, this language that he is using and applying. Think about washing. When the priests were consecrated for service in Israel, in Exodus chapter 29, verse 4, it says this, You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Later on in that chapter, 29, verse 21, You shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and on the anointing oil, sprinkle it on, sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments, and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. So the priests, when they were getting ready for the service of God, were washed with water and sprinkled with blood. That sounds very similar to what we're hearing about what happens to the believer in Christ. And, and, and some people that baptize infants will, will tell you that the sprinkling, and the language used for sprinkling is kind of the word baptize, and, and therefore they'll say we can... Uh, just uh, sprinkle water, okay, which would be a lot warmer for Aaron this afternoon, but uh, we're not going to do that uh, right now, okay? Moving on. Just leaving that out there, okay? So at their consecration, the Levitical priests were washed with water and sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice, and they are now fit for God's service. And that's what's going on. 
That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying is true for the believer in Christ. I'm not going to read it, but the, the altar of sacrifice and the, the laver basin for washing for the priest were right next to each other uh, in Exodus chapter 40. And so here in Hebrews, you don't wash every time. You go into the presence of God. It says you have been washed. You have been washed by water and the blood of the sacrifice. And now these four things that are mentioned here about why we can draw near, they're not actually completely separate. We're given a true heart because we've been washed clean from an evil conscience. We can have assurance firmly because we've been washed with pure water. We can have assurance of salvation. People with guilty consciences don't draw near to God. We see that in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. They sin. They try and get away. People with evil consciences only seek to potentially draw near in a way that is unpleasing to God. They don't go with confidence in the blood of Christ on their behalf. This is all showing the results of the new covenant that we read about in chapter 8. Foretold by the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. You see, as we start to think about baptism, we start to think about what God does to make people acceptable for his service and to come into his presence. It's not just simply an external washing of water. You don't just look good on the outside. I mean, imagine a, a cup that looks clean on the outside and then inside it's completely dirty and hasn't been washed for months and years. You wouldn't drink out of that. A cleansing of the whole person is required. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Titus, which we'll be preaching later this year, it says that Christ saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, right? not because of us, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God creates a church. Jesus Christ creates a church. He says Christ loved his bride in Ephesians 5.26, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The word of the gospel and the Holy Spirit combine and work together to create a child of God, a new Christian, who is being acceptable for God's sight. And so this washing, while it's not exclusively about baptism, it is absolutely a reference to baptism and what baptism signifies. This might feel a little bit like a Bible study with all these verses I'm churning out, but I don't apologize for Scripture, right? This is God's patience... Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, baptism is picturing, it is signifying a complete change that has happened, that has been done by God, that has cleansed our, our conscience, enabled, makes us able to come before God freely. Not a mere external washing. And it shows the effect of the union that the believer has with Christ that comes by the Holy Spirit. The gospel, the good news, that word is a message of Christ bearing the flood of judgment that we deserve, bringing us safely through as our ark. Baptism is therefore a picture that speaks of the great outpouring of God's grace upon his people. And having been cleansed, we can then walk in newness of life, being set apart. And the Christian isn't just baptized and then we go, okay, everything's done. It's where the language of improving upon our baptism comes. Now that you have been baptized, draw near, hold fast, pursue a life of holiness with which no one can see the Lord and stir one another up to love. You can draw near because of what has been done to you. And baptism is picturing that. The second one, I'll, I'll speed up on this one. Hold fast your confession. Draw near, let us draw near, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In Hebrews 4.14, it has already told us, hold fast our confession. And here it is once again emboldened. Faith in Christ and hope go together in this, this book of Hebrews. Because of hope, we have faith in the one who is our hope and who has gone before. The Christian can have hope without wavering. We can hold on to the gospel. We can hold on to our Savior. We can hold on to our beliefs even through difficult times because we believe that our forerunner has gone in and as tight as that rope is, he's getting us in. He's there already. Our forerunner is in the harbor. He has gone behind the curtain. He's gone into the presence of God. He will bring us in. Christian hope is positive. How many of us have hopes and dreams that have not been realized? Right? Absolutely. All of us, right? Surely. We say things like, I hope I pass that test tomorrow. I hope I pass that assignment. I, I hope I can afford that thing that is way out of my price range. I hope, I hope, I hope. We have no guarantee that those things are going to happen. But when the scripture is speaking here of hope, we're speaking of a sure thing. It's speaking of a sure thing. Calvin says this, he says, Hope is the child of faith, and it is fed and sustained by faith to the end. I love that. A declaration of hope is, is first shown at baptism and it is maintained until the very end of life. 
unto the end of our Lord. That's why Peter says, be prepared to give a reason for the hope within us. The Christian is to live a life of hope in what God has done. And we're told we can do this because God is faithful. I want to say this. God the Father promised His Son before the foundation of the world that He would, on the obedient completion of His task, receive a bride. Receive a holy people. God is going to keep his promise. Revelation 21 and 22 is written into the end of, that, of our Bibles. It will happen. Hold on to your hope. Don't look elsewhere. Lastly, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing there. I'm going to touch on this one next week because it's also connected to uh, not continuing in uh, unrepentant sin. But this is speaking of having now been made a priest, having now been given access to God, having now received all these wonderful benefits, used them in such a way to care for the community. That's what it's saying. Don't neglect to meet together. Christian community exists to stir one another up to love. I like what the, the King James Version says. It says, provoke one another to love. Don't provoke. You provoke the person next to you. Provoke them. Speaking positively. And so this brings with it something that we see going wrong in our culture with marriage. We often look at these verses and we say, well, I don't feel particularly loving. No one's really stirring me up to love. And we see this in marriages. You don't love me the way I want to love and therefore we separate and get divorced. We wind up with a stalemate. You won't love me, therefore... I'm not going to love you in return because you're not giving me what I want and you're not, you know, it just doesn't work. We've seen that? You move first. That's how you overcome a stalemate. Even if you've received nothing in return, you move first. It doesn't say love your neighbor as yourself providing that neighbor loves you back in return or loves you. It says, no, love your neighbor as yourself. You move first. We must love others. The opposite of love is, is, is selfishness. Now, of course, there, there's plenty of occasions in which we can, we can struggle to, to meet with Christians and work and health issues and all these kind of things. But we are to meet. And this is speaking primarily to the assembling of the church. So, so many people say, I want to be the church. I don't want to go to church. To which I say, why not both? You know the word ecclesia for church? It means assembly. You don't do that on your own. You know what I mean? It speaks of a, a gathered community. Philip Edgecombe Hughes says, not only does love promote fellowship, but fellowship promotes love. 
Christians are to seek to be hospitable to one another, to gather together regularly for worship, and to seek to meet and encourage one another, making the first move ourselves as the day draws near, which is speaking of the return of the Lord. It's not Jesus is coming back, wait and do nothing, he's coming back. He says, no, Jesus is coming back to love each other. That's what he's saying. It might not seem logical to you, but that is the argument. Be active. Serve, because there is a time when you will not be able to do the things you wish to do. There will not be people that you wish to love around you at all times. Seek to love them for the end is near. I think there's something beautiful. I want to close with this. There's something beautiful in these three levels of application. Draw near by faith. Let us hold fast. Hold fast to what? Our hope. And let us consider how to stir up to love. You heard that before? You've heard it in a wedding at some point, right? Faith, hope, and love. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. And that is what the writer of Hebrews is using to, to come up with this application. Have faith, hold fast to hope, and stir one another up in love. That is what you do in the Christian life. And therefore, we are told, we can learn from this, that the basis of the Christian life is the good news of the finished work of Christ. Having once been enemies, we are brought near. We are washed. We are made priests in service to our Lord as we live our lives here on earth as His ambassadors going out seeking to to do what He has told us to do. And we have this wonderful privilege so we should use our access to draw near to God. Let me close with a passage that sums this up so well. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-9. to And we'll get into the Lord's Supper. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray.